Thank you for being here today. Uh, and Alex is not just another name, that's his son who is, uh, who's interning with the ministry this year. Uh, just before we turn uh, to God's Word today, uh, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles or the app, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, but I just want to take a moment, I referenced this last week, I, I just want to take a moment and uh, give what I hope is a helpful uh, pastoral response to the recent Roe versus Wade decision. And I'll be honest, there's really not a simple or concise way to cover the ground that might be necessary on a subject this important. So maybe it's helpful if we don't think of this as like the church's final word on these things. But these are some introductory comments into a subject matter and a a mission field that I believe will be before us as a church for years to come. The court's decision on Roe versus Wade, Casey, and the Texas 16-week abortion ban is a mixture of morality, ethics, theology, education, law, science, and politics. And man, do we ever need the Holy Spirit's help to think clearly about these things. Especially when we think, want to, to think biblically on these different subjects of morality, ethics, theology, law, education, science, politics, and the right place in our governance as a nation, maybe in our own homes, or most importantly for individual believers, our own hearts. James 1, 19 through 21 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now last Friday, along with many of you, I I rejoiced at the initial news when I heard that the court had ruled to overturn Roe and Casey as legal precedent. I rejoice when our governmental systems uh, right what I believe to be wrongs from the past and, and more importantly align with what I believe to be a biblical worldview. Let me, let me make it just very clear and simple that MetroLife Church's stance is this, that as bearers of the image of God created in His image, bearers of the image that He has given to us, we affirm both the sanctity and dignity of life. It includes conception, to natural death, and as as it relates to our gospel mission through eternity. You know, as as it relates to the beginning of life, specifically related to issues surrounding abortion, we see that Scripture affirms a few things. And if you'll just indulge me for a few moments, there's, there's five things I just want us to consider from Scripture. It's really just scratching the surface of what God's word has to say to it. But in Luke 1, 41 through 44, and this is adapted from some materials from Wayne Grudem in Christian Ethics. Before the birth of John the Baptist, when his mother Elizabeth was in about her sixth month of pregnancy, she was visited by her relative Mary who was to become the mother of Jesus. And God's word tells us this. Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Psalm 51.5, David is thinking back to the time of his birth and says that he was brought forth from his mother's womb by God's design and intention. 
Psalm 139.13 says that David also thinks of himself as being a person while he was growing in his mother's womb because it says that about God that you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And what a beautiful picture of the hands of God designing each one of us differently. No more or less image bearers for his glory. In Genesis 25, 23 to 23, Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, was pregnant with the twins who were to be named Jacob and Esau. And once again, these unborn babies are viewed as children within their mother's womb. Exodus 21 says this, especially related to the question of abortion. Perhaps this is one of the most significant passages in God's word found about specific laws that God gave Moses for the people of Israel during the time of the Mosaic Covenant. We believe that this would stand true for today. But one particular law spoke of the penalties that would be imposed if the life or health of a pregnant woman or her unborn child was either endangered or harmed. We know from history that many in the community had to take care of those who had been attempted to be aborted. And we know throughout history that the church has been the foundation of many, not just charities, but organizations that run orphanages and foster care and adoption to affirm the sanctity and dignity of life. But can can I just bring you into how this personally kind of landed for me, if that's okay? Last Friday I got home. We were getting home from vacation. I think I got a, a text during kind of our, dr- our commute back from vacation and I believe we were sitting at Chick-fil-A of course and I just remember thinking thank God and then I started thinking how are we going to lead the church through this and so I got home that afternoon and after some things were kind of settled and I don't know if my family's like yours it takes us a week to actually settle after vacation So once we got to that part for that day, I kind of turned on the news. And I am not a huge fan of watching news, and I was reminded of why that day. Because it was like I was flipping the channels through talking points, talking around each other, rather than to one another, and maybe even for one another, like being for someone just because they're human. And I was heartbroken by that. So I walked two doors down to a pro-life clinic. And I said that correctly. Two doors down from my home. It's a pro-life clinic. And I just walked in the front door. And I just said, we're rejoicing with you, but what does this mean for you? And if you need anything tonight, I'm hearing calls for violence. This is my cell phone number. I'm a pastor in the area. If you need anything, just let me know. The irony of calls for violence to, to try to get such a violent act back into law. And as I'm standing there talking to the director of the clinic, she's telling me about some of the ladies that are already beginning to call and the fear that they have. And I thought, uh, 
that, that's, a, that's a common thing that we'll hear. And then I was surprised by what she said that some of these ladies are afraid of. She said that they're afraid of the people standing on the sidewalk yelling for her to choose life. And I was heartbroken. So the next morning, <clears throat> I, was, I was out with Duncan the Wonder Pup, one of our morning walks. I came around to the abortion clinic that sits right next door to the pro-life clinic in my neighborhood, on my block. There were about 20 people there, and they were standing literally on either side of the sidewalk. So I thought, let me just walk down the sidewalk and and just take this moment in and, and just feel kind of both sides. And I don't know what you know about me. There are things that I try to let you know in sermons, but I'm not a big person to talk about how something makes me feel. That's not my, like my leading language. But in that moment, I just thought, I just want to feel what it's like in whatever way, whatever capacity that I can. What is it like if there's a mom that's about to walk into this clinic, and can I confess to you, church, I hated both sides of that sidewalk that day for different reasons. See, I hated one side because what they're shouting is vile and against God's word, and it's crass and coarse in ways that, like, my mind can't even imagine. And then there was another side that was tone deaf, talking at rather than to. Speaking through as if it was just like they were just talking to a door, not a person on the other side of that. And church, we are called to better than that. We are called to a higher mission than that. So, let's get better at it. Let's get better at talking about these things. Because while one side is vile and the other side is tone deaf, there is a ripe mission field in front of us, ready for harvest. And what does Scripture always tell us? The workers are few. And may that not be said of Metro Life Church. May that not be said of me or of you. See, one thing I want us to be aware of in this church is, is not just voicing opposition to things that the world is doing that fall short of God's good design. I'm not surprised when the world acts like the world. But I do want to be a part of the solution when we can help and when people actually turn to us for help. So as I briefly shared last week, our mission is not beginning now. It's expanding exponentially. As a church, we celebrate, celebrate fostering, we celebrate adoption, we celebrate making ourselves available to mothers and fathers in crisis as they choose life. Fathers that are in that situation need our help so desperately. And we as a church are directly involved with several pro-life clinics offering support in a variety of ways We've been in contact with many of them over the past week. Shane, I, I was wrong. We should have put it up. So I'm just going to announce it now. If you're interested in what I'm about to talk about, talk to Shane. There's actually a way <clears throat> to, 
that you can be involved in prayer. Now, we've been talking about prayer as a subject for the last few weeks. Prayer is not just this passive thing. It is our active pleading before the throne of grace. The throne of grace who is miraculously able. That's what God's word said. He is able to do more, even than we know to ask or imagine in that moment. God is able to do those things. But there's actually ways that with some of the, the pro-life clinics that we're involved with that you can, you can sign up for a text and you'll receive a text message and it will just really clearly show you, hey, this counselor is with this person right now. I, I was kind of musing about it in the office and my mom goes, oh yeah, I actually get those texts. Let me show you what they look like. It's like, this is amazing. And it was a different clinic that had the exact same thing. And so there are a variety of ways that you can do this. And this clinic went into a, a different level of detail and it said, hey, pray for this person, uh, pray, not, not given names or anything like that, given initials, and, and pray for them because this is, what, this is what they're facing right now. I just thought, what an amazing way for the church to just get involved at a most basic spiritual discipline level of praying for someone. What are some things that we should take away? Well, praying does matter. I mean, your votes matter. Your votes have consequences. We're seeing that. And maybe what you're seeing as a good or a bad way, our votes have consequences, but more than that, your prayers matter more than your vote. Your prayers matter more than your vote. Never stop praying. There are those that have been praying for this decision to be overturned for 49 years, 18,050 days. pleading before the throne of grace what are you facing today that you've given up praying for never stop praying there are believers that never saw this day because of their own death over the years but they fought with it or they fought for it till their dying breath and so today can i just say that if you've ever stood on a sidewalk on behalf of life if if you've ever served to stuff envelopes for pregnancy centers, if you ever prayed for Roe to be overturned, if you ever participated in Walks for Life or any of the other things that the church does or that you've done individually, last Friday represented an earthly payday for you and we rejoice with you. You made a difference. Thank you. But can we consider something else? Can we consider that multiple things can be true at the same time? Can we consider the woman in our midst who may be experiencing grief or silent shame? What do I mean by that? In our own congregation, members of our own fellowship, there are women who have had abortions. Maybe their families know or maybe they don't. <clears throat> Maybe we don't even know the silent grief that they're walking through. Even as abortion is in the news and in front of them just constantly right now. Because they've never disclosed their story or their testimony with you or possibly even their own family. Can we watch our mouth, church? Can we watch our actions? See, Scripture tells us to watch our life and doctrine. Can we gently respond 
with compassion and kindness if you're brought into a testimony you've never heard before? Can we respond with compassion and kindness even if you don't know that testimony? Our church must be a place of hope and healing for the weary women of our world. Women who are weary of trying to prove their worth. Women who may be ashamed of past sin. Women who are wondering if there is a safe space in the world for them to thrive. You know, Jesus actually created that kind of space. And so, you know what a part of our mission as a church is? To create that kind of space. Who can forget his affection for Mary? making room for her to sit at his feet and learn as a disciple. Who, who can forget his compassion for the woman caught in adultery? He didn't condemn, he set free. Who can forget his defense of Mary when she broke the perfume bottle and gave of everything that she had? Women were the first to witness the resurrection and preach the good news to the apostles. It was a woman who stayed at the cross, faithful, while other disciples fled. So don't forget, church. We must demonstrate respect and honor for women today. Some, some may have questions or concerns about the rhetoric that they hear from one side or another, but we also must be prepared to give an account not only for our hope, but to give an account for ethical and moral clarity that is rooted in God's Word. You know, this, this week in response to Roe and even thinking back to last week as we had some pastoral comments and prayer related to Pride Month, I'll confess, I'm not personally a fan of language that I hear related to battlegrounds and war on culture, where it's almost militant in its language, without an acknowledgement that there are people's lives affected by the things that we may be discussing. See, I do believe that there's a new season of opportunity to engage our culture through love, through care, and support with what I pray will be biblical clarity. So let's pray for God's help through both wisdom and courage. See, we do want you to be equipped as a church, and recently I became aware of a resource written by our own John Stenberger. It's titled, Thinking Clearly After Row. So some may be thinking about the far-reaching implications of this decision. I personally found this booklet help, helpful as I read it. It's very, a very brief read. I've got just some notes in here where I'm like, okay, I wonder about this. I have some questions about that. You know, just trying to engage this subject in a, in a healthy way. We want you to be equipped as a church, and so we have these available for you after the service because I personally found this book helpful in terms of categories like the needs for support for pro-life clinics. What what implications this does have on elections what what does it look like to cherish all of life as it relates to the sanctity and dignity of life what what does it look like to to actually educate one another and our children in the midst of these moments so these will be available in the lobby but more than that as pastors we're available to talk through these types of things with any of you and any questions that you may have before we turn to god's word can we just pray together These are serious and weighty subjects that, unfortunately, we're handling with some brevity today. But the Holy Spirit knows how to equip us and give us everything that we need for life and godliness. So, Holy Spirit, we look to you now. 
lead us and guide us through your word, through, through the way that you say look to the left or to the right, the way that you instruct us and lead us. Lord, may we have biblical clarity in our thinking about all of these subjects whether it relates to the law or to science or to all of these other things. Lord, we think about the 49 years and how even a word like viability looks so different 49 years after it was introduced into legal precedent. And you know what? That's a part of your good grace to us. But it means that we'll need even more clarity to live for your glory. So we ask for that this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that moment. I look forward to discussing with any of you that would have any questions related to that in the days ahead. All right, 1 Corinthians 12, two verses today. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now right out of the gate this morning, in verse 12, we have a reminder that Paul's point in writing to the church in Corinth is very simply these two things. He is concerned about unity within the church and he is concerned about the purity of the church as a representative body of Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life to save them. See, we are made one in Christ, as we're told in this. And Christ himself is one with the Father and the Spirit. Now, we're going to focus on that a bit more next week. The unity through diversity that we're called to in the church and and kind of extrapolating out this metaphor, this analogy of the body. But I think that it's simple to say this morning that there are kind of two things that Paul is after in this closing section of 1 Corinthians 12. He wants to warn us not to depersonalize the Holy Spirit. And this is the part that we'll focus on this morning. Don't depersonalize the Holy Spirit. Because if you do just depersonalize the Holy Spirit, you are robbing the third person of the Trinity of the power that he gives to you for a godly life. The second thing that he's doing is he's saying, don't be a disembodied representation of Christ to a watching world. Don't be a disembodied representation of Christ to a watching world. We're going to look at this aspect a bit more next week. Because if you're doing that, you rob the cross of its power to bring people together through their common need for a Savior. Now, when we talk about Scripture using metaphor or analogies, I think it's very easy for us to almost look at that and go, that's a neat concept. And, and almost discount the fact that those analogies and those metaphors exist in Scripture to actually help us understand a concrete truth about God, about ourselves, about how it is that He gives Himself to us, about how it is that He gave Himself for us. So just because a metaphor or analogy is used in Scripture, it doesn't mean that there's not something in there for it to reveal to us. So this morning I want to focus on a question that has long been raised about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Are we baptized in the Holy Spirit or are we to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And so let me just simply say at the outset, we can have the band come back out, yes. All right, let's pray and worship to get, no. 
Yes. We're baptized and we're to be filled. Yes. Now there's obviously a lot more questions that go into that. But what I'd like to do this morning is kind of step back from theological triage and let's look at what Scripture plainly says to us. Because when we approach a passage like this, these two verses are actually pretty humbling, aren't they? They're pretty humbling. There's, there's a bit of an irony contained in them, isn't there? It's what humbles us about them. There, there are many who would see this text as an affirmation of a separate baptism of the Spirit that happens following salvation. Others read here an experience of baptism in or of the Spirit at the same time of conversion. And what's, so what's the irony in that? Well, Paul's point in writing this passage was unity in the church, and these two small verses have divided many a church. Seems like the opposite of what his intention is. More than a few churches have split over this. More, more than a few national movements started over disagreements over these two verses. May that not be our experience here. So let's look to God's Word together to see what it, see what it shows us that we might gain in understanding what it has to reveal to us. And we're just going to simply use verse 13 in three sections to help us understand this morning. So let's look at the first part of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now this is a central text for what we would know as spirit baptism. The third person in the Trinity is named throughout Scripture as the Holy Spirit. There are some other phrases that are used to describe him, some other uh, metaphors or analogies that are used to describe him. You might hear breath, spirit, water, fire, wind. You mix a little earth in there. We can sing about it in September. If you get earth, wind, okay, good, you got it, good. But you know, thinking about those analogies and those metaphors, they shouldn't stop us thinking about him as a powerful third person in the Trinity. You know, in a meeting the other night, <clears throat> actually last night, we were in here and it was just after midnight when myself and Jim and Katie uh, and Mike Gilland left here. Ella was up here with me. Uh, she left a little bit earlier in the evening. But we're serving together. And you know those moments, right, when you're serving together and there's, there's a camaraderie that happens in those moments because there's a common cause, there's a common goal. There's something you're trying to accomplish together. And really what it might be is, hey, do you remember that moment we survived that thing? That was a little bit what last night felt like. Maybe early this morning is a better way to describe it. Do you remember that moment we survived that thing? So normally when Ed tells me that there's chocolate cupcakes, again, my, my appeal is let's at least call them muffins, you know, so it sounds like breakfast. But when he tells me this morning there's chocolate cupcakes and I don't always go and get one this morning, I was like, Yes. I will take whatever energy God graces me with this morning. Because there's a camaraderie to those things. And we were in a meeting the other night with some of the, the guys in the church who are, are, are thinking deeply about these things. We're actually beginning to talk about what are the implications of a series like this on a church that's going to make a claim to be a charismatic or a, a spirit-filled church. And so what does that mean? Well, it means we have some training to do. It means we have some work to do. It means that we have some things to, to talk through with our community group leaders, to, to knead into the way that we do ministry on Sunday mornings. And so there's going to be equipping and training that comes with that. I can't do that alone. 
So we're meeting together, and, and I kind of threw down the gauntlet at the beginning of the meeting, and I just thought, this ought to get everybody going, right? Guys, I'm preaching on this this Sunday, so we need to land on something. Is it baptized at the time that you're saved, or is it a separate baptism? And you know what I appreciate about that moment? There wasn't the same kind of camaraderie that's like, hey, remember when we sur- survived that thing together? There was a camaraderie that said, you know what, that, that question is not as important to us as this. The church needs the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. Praise God for individuals in our church that are gifted in these areas that have that kind of heart for us, church. Praise God that we know that we can kind of talk through those things and we know that there might be agreement or disagreement on a variety of tertiary issues, but praise God they're focused on getting the right things right. See, the the work of the Holy Spirit may be secondary, but that means that it, it actually plays out very practically in the life of the church. And so what happens in that moment, in that meeting, is something that I think Paul actually has as a point They jump past all of the other issues to the unity on the main issue, and that is we need the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. Now in Corinth, culturally, there would have been many idols or gods or beings or deities that would have had maybe an element of presence or power named after them. That would would kind of become that that deity's, quote-unquote, that deity's identity. And what Paul points to is a spirit that's like no other spirit because all of the qualities that you would want are in one spirit. They're wrapped up in one spirit. He's like no other in his oneness. Actually, in Ephesians 2.18, Paul talks about, in the other Pauline epistles, this is just another example, he talks about us being brought into one spirit. Spirit, that's oftentimes the phrase that's used. And, and what we need to recognize is that's actually something that is radically countercultural to say. One spirit, one, one source of help, one source of supply, one source of power, one source of comfort, one source of joy, one source of fruitfulness and purpose, one source of all of the things that you need for life and godliness. More than that, all of the things that you need for this abundant life that we've been called to. But we can depersonalize him at times because we think, well, that's a spirit. No, that's the spirit. The only one you need. So what are some ways that, that Scripture kind of points out this personal nature of the personal being of the Holy Spirit. Well, thank you to Sam Storms for some of this material, but Scripture affirms that the Holy Spirit has the qualities of a personal being and that he has a mind, he has knowledge. He, he has emotions and feelings. He has a will and that he, he, he makes choices and he makes plans. Scripture shows us how the Holy Spirit performs all of the functions of a personal being. He talks, he testifies, he can be sinned against, lied to, tested or tempted, he can be insulted. He enters into relationships with others. He encourages, he strengthens, and he teaches. Those are personal, those are items of a personal nature of this spirit that we are given. But this spirit that we're given doesn't just stop there. He's actually a divine person. 
What is said of God is said of the Holy Spirit. What is, the Holy Spirit is identified directly with Yahweh. So the activity of God is the activity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that empowers you and I today for Christian life is the same one that was hovering over the waters at creation. That's amazing to think about. And His power hasn't diminished over that time. It's not like after creation He looked like Thanos and was like, the cost that we pay. You know, he, he wasn't done. He's as invigorated for God's glory today through you and me as he was in the creation of this earth. That's amazing to think about. So the activity of God is the activity of the Holy Spirit. What God says, it's said through the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God because it is the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Not only is the Holy Spirit divine, but he has a very distinct purpose. And that's what we want to focus in a little bit on today. He has power, he has purity, he has presentation, he has presence. And so let's break those down just a little bit. He has power, that's the God-given ability to do what God wants us to do. And my notes online, I'm going to link to some of this because I know people are like, I just want to, I want to see the scripture references. Thank you for that. I want to show you the scripture references. I just wanted us to be done in a timely manner today. So I want to give you those scripture references. But the, the, the power that we receive is from the Holy Spirit. It's power for what? It's power for hope, for miracle, for prayer, for praise, for preaching. Power of the Holy Spirit kind of matters to me. It matters for you to pray for, for me and those who would be preaching in this church. There's performance, and I, I don't mean our ability to earn our own salvation. What I mean through performance is there is the impartation of spiritual gifts and there is the energizing of those spiritual gifts. And we're going to look at a few of those more specifically in the weeks ahead. There's purity. The, the Holy Spirit sanctifies our motives and our actions. The Holy Spirit delivers us from the power and the pollution of sin. The Spirit cultivates His fruit in our lives. Imagine that. He, he cultivates fruit of the Spirit through the soil of our lives. That's amazing to think about. There's the presentation the, the, of the truth, the sense of making us aware of spiritual things. There's revelation through Scripture. There's interpretation of what God's Word means. There's illumination on the things that are going on in the world. And His presence, the Holy Spirit makes known to us. And He is in us in the per person of Jesus. The Holy Spirit mediates the presence and the power of Christ in our hearts. His role is to throw a, a floodlight, as it were, to, to kind of spotlight the person of Jesus Christ in our lives. Have you ever had a moment where you just think about, I, I've never thought about Jesus Christ in that way, and then you see where it aligns with Scripture, and you just think, thank you, that's the Holy Spirit at work. In our affirmations of faith as a church, we say it this way. We believe that the Holy Spirit is fully God, eternally one with the Father and Son. <clears throat> the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit also convicts unbelievers of their need for Christ and imparts spiritual life through regeneration, the new birth. You might call that salvation or coming to faith. The Spirit indwells, sanctifies, leads, illumines, and graciously empowers for godly living and service all that come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ baptizes believers in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills, empowers, and anoints believers for ministry and witness. Now you may think, why why is it you share these things this morning? Well, one, we haven't been talking about this a lot lately. And it's beyond time to. It's beyond time to. It's time for us to begin to talk about these things because where it is that we, we seem to be hitting these roadblocks in our own spiritual faith, in our own spiritual maturity, seems to be related to an anemic understanding of the Holy Spirit. If your discipleship path seems to have come to an impasse, it may be because the Holy Spirit's not in it. I don't mean that as an accusation, but I wonder about two other things that may be going on in us as a church. I wonder about doubt and fear. I wonder about those that may doubt a need for a divine helper. I wonder about those that doubt his ability to enable our walk with Christ as our Savior. So not only may you be questioning, is Christ enough? Or you may say, Christ is enough. Why would I need the Holy Spirit? Perhaps you're struggling with both. And it's the Holy Spirit who helps us understand that Christ is enough. And if you're lacking that, how will we ever walk for his glory? What about fear? Maybe a fear that the Holy Spirit would overwhelm us. You hear the language and rhetoric that can be used even as it relates to the Holy Spirit and you just think, I'm not sure I I want that. I'm constantly challenging us as a church. Let's use biblical language as it relates to the person of the Holy Spirit. Because I think it's in biblical language that we rightly find a power for godliness. So you may hear a phrase. Maybe it's even a phrase that you were introduced to years ago before you even came to church here and you just think, I'm not sure I want that. It seems overwhelming. I'd rather be overwhelmed by the Spirit than underwhelmed by a faith that doesn't work. What about fear that you won't understand properly? What about fear that your experience might be wrong? Your experience doesn't go just right. And, and if your experience isn't perfect, then, then why, why dabble in it to begin with? That's a, that's a fear. Maybe a fear that you don't know what it'll ask you to do or, or reveal about us like, like it's some kind of psychic Now, the Old Testament tells us that God knows our thoughts. And he forgives us and accepts us through Jesus Christ anyway. So let's put those fears aside. Let's also recall what Romans 8, 15 through 17 tells us. For you did not receive the spirit of... For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So doubt and fear aren't things that Jesus himself fears. He actually meets us in those moments in our very time of need. 
but they're also the very reason that Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit. That we would know that we are children of God. That there wouldn't be a doubt. That there wouldn't be fear of what that means. You know, the analogy of water baptism, it does help us understand something, doesn't it? See, just as as John immersed people in the water and, and, and they went under and they were just kind of saturated on the outside, so Jesus will immerse people in and saturate them with the Holy Spirit. Think about these words that John says of the coming Christ. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John helps us understand the Holy Spirit doesn't baptize anyone. It's Jesus who is baptizing you and I in or with the Holy Spirit. So how many Christians, you may wonder, how many Christians are are baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, verse 13 very clearly tells us, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. If Lewis Seifert were here, he'd say all. That's the word. And all were made to drink of one spirit. It's just similar to language that Paul uses in verse 6. And there were a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Everyone. So this helps us, this leads us to understanding the next part of the passage where he says Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. Like, that's an interesting thing to kind of insert here. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. Okay. That really clears up the issue of one baptism or second baptism. Thank you, Paul. No, let's think about what, a, what we read in a parallel passage in Galatians. For you were all baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, the reason I share this about the Spirit's work is this too was a radical departure from the culture of the day where power was understood, whether it was between the sexes or in levels or trade or position. But see, the church as a unified body in Christ would have equal access, would have equal empowerment by this one spirit. And all of them were made to drink of one spirit. So let's leave the mixing of metaphors where Paul seems to start off with baptism and then end with drinking. It's like, Paul, that's confusing. I think he had a point. I think he was after something. See, what this, vo- what this verse points us to is a call, as we see throughout the New Testament, to, to be regularly experiencing an encounter with the Holy Spirit that would be known as a filling or being filled. Back again to our affirmations of faith on the spiritual gifts as a church. It says this, While the Holy Spirit at conversion indwells all genuine believers, the New Testament indicates the importance of an ongoing, empowering work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. The Holy Spirit desires to fill each believer continually with increased power for Christian life and witness. And believers should seek this filling as a regular and recognizable blessing for the Christian life. Allow me just for a moment to point our attention to Ephesians 5.18 where we're told, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Let me echo what many a pastor for ages on ages and until Christ returns will say. That is a present imperative. 
that's a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a command. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've been thinking a lot this week about that mixing of metaphors, baptism and filling. May I offer this? I think that the, thanks for not saying no, by the way, that was super helpful. I think the scripture shows us a life as a follower of Christ, a life of abundance, continually experiencing this covenantal blessing of the presence of the Holy Spirit by being filled. But this life is to be utterly saturated to the full. Utterly saturated to the full. See, some of us are dry. Some of us have a crusty faith. That's disgusting. But much like baptism, this isn't just something that we desire. But we outwardly and we humbly submit ourselves to this. We earnestly desire. We seek after this. D.A. Carson in his book, Showing the Spirit, says it this way, the Spirit does not simply inaugurate the new age and then disappear. Rather, he characterizes the new age. So our saturation with the Spirit results in some things. There's a purpose to it. In, in the context of this passage today, we, we're going to see, even as we look at it next week, that it's a participation in the body of Christ, the church. But the Holy Spirit's saturation leads to our maturation. It leads to maturity. It leads to spiritual development, health in our spirit. As we look different than the world around us, because we are those who have immersed ourselves in His presence. See, the things then that we bring into our lives will be changed because we're seeking to glorify God with our bodies and the things that we watch, that we listen to, that we know or even imagine. The things that we are filled with through the filling of the Holy Spirit and the ways that it pours out and it, and it glorifies God as it begins to, to bring about and cultivate in the soil of our soul, in the soil of our own lives, a spiritual fruitfulness. And the ways that we talk to and about our brothers and sisters will change. The men and women that we interact with and the testimony that we share is going to begin to draw people in in a new way. And, and what is it that's filling you up these days? Because they'll see a stark difference in what may be shallow or empty lives around them, including their own. See, Paul's reference to the Holy Spirit as one that we would drink in might, might bring to mind Old Testament imagery of the promised age to come in which the land and its people have the Spirit poured out on them. Think of what we read in Isaiah chapter 32 where it says, until the Spirit is poured out on us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. What do we have here? This beautiful imagery of growth and maturation. What about in Isaiah 44 where it says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. I don't know any parent here 
that doesn't long for that for their children. But don't be the parent here that's here so your kids have it better than you had it. Be the parent here that models for them what it looks like to live a spirit-filled life. What about Ezekiel 39 where it says this, I will not hide my face anymore from them. I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. See, greater than the prophets or even Paul, this is at the very heart of Jesus as he's preparing his disciples. I'm just going to ask the band to join me. I mean it this time. As they just begin to quietly play, can we hear the words of our Savior? As he's instructing his disciples in John 16, verses 4 through 15. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where you're going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, because he's telling them that he will leave. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them right now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What a wonderful covenantal blessing we have through the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit as believers. Here, the one who is the very centerpiece of history, the one who is the very centerpiece of our faith in Jesus Christ, he is telling us that walking with the Holy Spirit is more advantageous than walking with Jesus himself. You know, walking with the Spirit is the language that we see in the book of Galatians. So let me ask you this morning as we close. When were you last filled with the Holy Spirit? Does the testimony of your life exhibit this saturation of His indwelling presence? Have your best efforts come up shy of any real goal or sustainability in discipleship as a follower of Jesus? See, I ask because some here have neglected him and some have depersonalized him. Some have just assumed you can get along well enough in your Christian life under your own power. Maybe because of your ingenuity, your own wisdom, your own brilliance, you don't need the help of the Holy Spirit. Some of you may be here today and you have unrepentant 
repentant sin and you've grieved the Holy Spirit as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Some have quenched his fire because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, you are resistant to the spiritual gifts. What you may be here this morning and just simply need is this, for the Spirit to, to energize your heart yet again, to set your affections on fire for Jesus and for one another. Some need Him to come and just, just bring light to your mind. As Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1, that you might see yet again, in a new and a fresh way, the beauty of your calling in Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that you were made to drink of Him and some of you here this morning have gotten dry. You don't even remember what being filled was like. But here's what's true for you and I this morning. Today and every day, you can dip your cup into the presence and the power of the Spirit and you can drink more and again to the satisfaction of your soul to the empowering of your life. And so this morning we pray, Holy Spirit, fill us. Church, would you stand? And as you do, I just believe this. We're not going to have the ministry team come forward right now. If, if, if any of those categories that I just read through are you, just come forward as the, begin, as the band begins to lead us through this song. Just come forward. Don't wait for another call. Don't wait for another moment. Perhaps you're the one that just says, I just need to dip the cup in again. Maybe I'm bringing the wheelbarrow. Maybe I'm bringing the tanker truck. That's how dry things feel. I don't know. But God does, and he's going to meet you right here this morning. It's going to fill you yet again. That when you come to him asking for more of him, he does not turn you away because he is a father that when his son, when his children ask for bread, he does not give them a stone. And so if you come this morning asking for filling, he is not going to withhold that. He is going to meet you right in this place and fill you and saturate you again with his presence for his glory. Church, can we just begin to sing as those respond this morning?